Good evening, and welcome to the July 2019 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, the summer tourism season is definitely here, and there's so much to enjoy and experience right here in the North Bay, especially for LGBTQ tourists who are looking for a gay-friendly and supportive business and destination. But you don't have to be an out-of-towner to enjoy these same experiences. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know how much of a culinary guy I am. So this month, I thought it would be fun to introduce you to a couple of LGBTQ-friendly food experiences that you can take advantage of that are located right here. So tonight, we're going to talk about some famous biscuits with Big Bottom Market owner Michael Volpot, and I'll introduce you to my chef instructor, Barbara Alexander, who's now doing exclusive private culinary and wine tours here locally and in some pretty amazing destinations around the world. If you have a love of food and beautiful places, be sure to stay with us, because it's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 28th, 2019. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of July 28th, 2019. A Russian activist who was listed on the now-blocked website that urged users to hunt down and torture LGBTQ people has been murdered. According to The Guardian, friends wrote on social media, Yelena Gregorieva was found dead near her home in St. Petersburg last Friday night. She had been stabbed several times and strangled. She was an advocate for LGBTQ rights and other causes, including freedom for Ukrainian political prisoners. A friend and fellow activist wrote on Facebook that she had received death threats and reported them to police who took no action. Russian news sources report police contended that the threats weren't serious and that they arose simply from conflicts with her acquaintances. Police in St. Petersburg confirmed that they found the body of the 41-year-old woman with several stab wounds but did not identify the victim. The Guardian reports a Russian news website says police have arrested a suspect. And here in the U.S. in St. Petersburg, Florida, Chico Cromartie says homosexuality is a choice, and he's running for city council in one of the state's most gay-friendly cities. Cromartie doesn't honor the pride flag, and he promises he won't bow, quote, to their agenda, end quote. He thinks the LGBT community is thriving in St. Petersburg at the expense of the black community. Cromartie said, quote, it makes me more popular as a leader, because people understand I'm going to lead based on American principles, not because they choose to be homosexual, end quote. Cromartie is running for District 7, which borders Gulfport. He's one of three candidates challenging incumbent Lisa Willer Bowman. The primary is scheduled for August 27th, and the two candidates will move on to the November 5th general election. And in the Bay Area last week, San Francisco International Airport held ceremonies to begin the opening of the new Harvey Milk Terminal 1. The event included a look at the upcoming Grand Hyatt Hotel at SFO. The new terminal is the first airport facility in the world named after an LGBT leader, as Milk was the first gay person to win political office in San Francisco and California with his 1977 election to a seat on the Board of Supervisors. Tragically, disgruntled former Supervisor Dan White killed Milk and then-Mayor George Moscone inside City Hall on the morning of November 27, 1978. According to the Bay Area Reporter, Harvey Milk Terminal 1 opened to the first nine-gate section that will serve Southwest and JetBlue flights. The new terminal includes a mammoth milk installation curated by the SFO Museum, which includes photos, campaign materials, newspaper clippings, and other items. 
And here locally, you can learn more about LGBTQ history this fall at Napa Valley College. The Introduction to LGBT Studies class begins on August 15th and meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 11 a.m. You can register right now at napavalley.edu. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the LGBT news headlines we're following, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Cooking good food has been a big part of my life since I was first inspired by my grandmother and mother. I cooked part-time on the wine train and in 2016 had a chance to go to culinary school to study under executive chef and my good friend Barbara Alexander. Chef B, as she's best known, has worked in kitchens in some amazing restaurants all around the world. Today she's leading private culinary and wine tours here in the North Bay and in some incredible places around the world. These tours are perfect for LGBTQ foodies who enjoy experiences with small groups. Chef B, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Greg. Awesome to see you. Very exciting to connect with you at this level. So we've got a lot to talk about. Let's begin with where your passion for food came from. Oh, sure. Well, you know, as a kid, I grew up with two teachers as parents, and they were not wealthy at all. But my dad felt, and it was interesting, actually. My dad had come from Australia, and his dad was a bookie, and his mom worked in a pub. So he was very working class. Somehow, he made this weird, um, huge leap into being super interested in food. And so I grew up in a household that we didn't have a lot of money, but my parents always made sure that we ate the best. We drove every morning across Vancouver. I'm from Canada. And we drove every morning across Vancouver to get the best bread made by a German baker. Uh, Then we turned around and went to the other side of town where an English guy was making his own bacon. And this is what our weekends looked like. So it was pretty, I was raised, uh, you know, on this fundamental belief that even if you don't have a lot of money, you can eat the best food possible. So I guess that's where my passion comes from. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I think back to my grandparents and my grandmother making homemade ravioli oh, and homemade yeah. sauce, and I could I could smell it, and I still today can sure. think about that smell, and, and it's it's inspiring. Well, I would like to have had that Italian background myself, but you get what you get. You know, they took us traveling. Uh, we traveled all over the place. Um, my dad didn't fly, so we went everywhere by boat, freighter, uh, ocean liner, and not cruises. Not like food-related cruises, but then when we would get to these places, he knew everywhere to go and source ingredients. So it was really cool. Yeah, and that led you probably to become a traveler, I would imagine. You got real comfortable with traveling. For sure. For sure on the traveling. And, you know, and I obsessively researched, like, where to eat. And and I know that's my dad. I'm my dad all over again. And we really don't like to settle for just your average kind of meal. There's a great meal to be had in every place you go. You just have to dig around to find it. I can even find you places on the I-5. <laughs> and that's saying something. Well, we'll, uh, we'll get back to finding uh, tips for finding a good restaurant in a second. But you've, you've had a chance to cook all over the world. I remember you telling all of these different stories about different places that you've lived and cooked and some pretty crazy stories, as I remember. Yeah. <laughs> what stands out for you as, as being some of the most exciting or interesting places, life-changing, if you will, that you've cooked at? Huh. Well, um, it, and that's funny because it varies from places that I've eaten that were life-changing. But um, actually, I have to say that Australia was definitely... I've lived in Australia and England and Canada and the States. And for sure, um, Australia was the most innovative um, 
definitely the most uh, rewarding experience that I had culinarily on many levels with the people, uh, with my mentors, um, but definitely with the sourcing of the ingredients and just people's attention and detail to food was unbelievable. In the 80s, they were above and beyond everybody else. And I remember you telling us how cool, how amazing, and how fun the LGBT Pride celebration is there, the, the Mardi Gras. Uh, Talk about that. I mean, sure. were the restaurant people you were working with part of the community? So, um, yeah. So, well, I'll tell a quick and, and funny thing at the very beginning. You know, I went to apply for it. I was working in a, running a hotel, and it was, it was a rewarding job. Um, it was a very busy job, and I was the first female chef to be running a hotel in Sydney at the time. And um, I was following a woman who was a re- an up-and-coming chef and has since become one of Australia's main names in the culinary world. And, and I went to apply for a job there. And her partner, um, Margie, um, her name's Christine Manfield, and her partner, Margie Harris, came out to interview me. And she was a little tiny thing in a black, jet black men's suit um, with leggings and just a crazy little fireball. And she turned around and went into the kitchen and she said, there's no way I'm going to hire that yank. And I thought, isn't that funny? That's kind of, um, you know, we, we all know that the, the gay community has been marginalized so, in so many ways. And here I was getting a taste of what it was like to be marginalized for something that I actually wasn't even a yank. I was a Canadian. But, um, but it was really funny to sort of have that reverse marginalization. When Christine, the chef, came out, she was wearing a crisp white chef's jacket. She had a blonde mohawk. She's quite a tall lady and slim, gorgeous. And she had on fishnet stockings and Doc Martin boots and nothing under the chef's jacket, which was kind of a surprise. <laughs> so that was one of my first tastes of, of course, I've been in the restaurant business already for 10 years. Um, and gay people are part of the culture. They're part of the fabric of the culinary world, uh, without a doubt. I mean, they're the servers in your restaurant. They're cooks in your kitchen. They're the restaurant managers, the sommeliers. And so I had pretty much, um, I grew up with very open parents. And so I had been in the, you know, with a toe in the gay community for some time. But when I moved to Australia, I was the only straight person in the restaurant that I worked in. Wow. And so these two gals ran the restaurant, and they're my best friends still to this day. Um, and uh, almost everybody else in the restaurant was gay. So in the in the kitchen, in the front of house, and it was really an interesting. Um, and you know, I don't know whether they were some of them were gay. They might have been bisexual. I have no idea. But um, that was my family for uh, the whole nine years that I lived there. So I was not only a toe in the water. I was I was neck deep in the water with maybe just just my head above the water there for a long time. Um, you know, all of our friends were in the restaurant business. Almost all of them were gay. I'm still very good friends with many of the very prominent people who were in the culinary industry back then. Even one night, I, I always think of this, I hadn't been there that long, and we ended up in a, in a gay bar. That was pretty de rigueur. We did that pretty much every night. Um, but in this particular night, they were filming uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh, no kidding. Oh, it was just awesome. And unfortunately, I got cut out of the film because I was too far down the bar. There's this great drag show scene in that you probably remember. And um, there it was at the Oxford on Oxford Street in uh, Sydney. So it was awesome. So, yeah, you know what? It was, it wasn't, I wouldn't want to say it was an eye opener because I wasn't, um, I don't think I had my eyes closed in the first place. Um, I'd like to think that I'm accepting. One of the great things, Greg, about culinary is that 
I think people that are attracted to the culinary business, just um, it, it's part of our nature to want to learn about all different cultures, about all foods from all different countries. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not a stretch to accept and put your arms around another community. Um, and that community was the LGBTQ community in Sydney, which is huge. Uh, they were our customers. Um, I lived in a very gay area there. And I have to say, it's a pretty cool place to be gay. Very open-minded. When you think of Australians, you know, that sometimes you think they probably are, you know, a little bit on the rednecky side like Canadians. But um, super open and accommodating and welcoming to the gay world. And the Mardi Gras, you have to go there. It is probably the best party I've ever been to. And I went nine years in a row. Loved it. Well, I've heard you say that. And if it weren't for that long flight, I probably would have already been there. <laughs> exactly. But uh, maybe one day, Tony and I will jump on a business class flight and oh, yeah. head you to Australia. You, you can't. That's a long flight for an economy. That's for sure. So talk about your philosophy when it comes to cooking. Well, you know, I, I've been through the full gamut of uh, Nouvelle cuisine, old French cuisine, um, you know, farm to table. I think that my, um, my philosophy, having done all of those types of, of cooking, is really to just be sort of true to your own passion when it comes to cooking. It should be, you should love what you're doing. Uh, you should love to eat what you're making, um, which I know sounds crazy when you're talking to some people. But people, you know, people think, oh, well, I'm just going to do this as a career, as a trade, as opposed to you know something that you're very passionate about. But I think um, I, I go back to, and it sounds funny to do with food, and it's not because I'm doing this interview on your radio station. But I think inclusiveness is so important, and I could I could give that a gay spin right now if you want, but I'm not going to. What I'm going to do is tell you that there are people who can't afford to eat in fancy restaurants. But those people might really want to go to a great restaurant. And they should still be able to get that quality, passion-driven food anywhere they are. And I think, you know, we're fighting some really big food service, um, you know, conglomerates out there. And I love the concept of farm to table, but it doesn't work if you're living in Alaska, you know, necessarily in the middle of winter. So I think that they're just, I, I like to come back to that inclusivity piece that it's really nice to, that hopefully that everybody can enjoy like a really great meal. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think sometimes and tell me if you agree or not, that simple is better than super complicated? Oh, for sure. When I see a super complicated plate, I think, how many hands has that taken to touch all that food, to get it onto the plate? As a work of art, I can definitely appreciate it. As something really tasty, I'd love to try your grandmother's ravioli. <laughs> you know, that's where, where it comes down to. So I, I, I like to think that, you know, there's definitely true artisans out there. Dominique Crenn, um, just to name, I could name a million of them just sitting here, but that, that express their passion in, in terms of art. And I think it's wonderful and I think it's great. She also does a ton of charity work. So there probably are ways for people to, to try her food. But I just, I really like the concept at this point in my life of thinking that anybody can, can try my, my food. Yeah. 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 I like it. So speaking of which, if you were going to sit down and make your favorite eight course tasting menu for a group of friends. Give us, give us an idea of what that would look like. What are your favorites? Mm. Well, I'd love it to be outside. 
because we live like right in this beautiful uh, country and it is so great outside at this, especially at this time of year. You know, I love, I don't want to use the moniker farm to table, but I really would love to be able to go out into my garden with you and grab a whole bunch of stuff and then just come in and think about what it, what do we feel like eating? What do we want to cook? So, I mean, I could list you a million menus of fancy refined food, but I think the, the funnest things are where you engage all the people that you're, your friends or your, your dinner companions or whatever it is. I love the idea of engaging them in, um, in getting, picking something or, or even buying something, you know, just some really great tomatoes from a farm stand and thinking of what we can do to make those taste great. So I can't really list you an eight course menu. Um, but what I love the idea of is that at the end of dinner, everybody's had a chance to be involved in it some way and everybody's eating it. And I, of course, want you to leave saying, oh my God, that's just like one of the best experiences, the best meals, the best company that I've ever had. Well, I think you remember when you had Tony and I over one night for lasagna, and, uh, and yeah. that is one of Tony's sacred dinners. Oh, um, no, he, he's I always, I made that he's always He's always said that his mom has made the best lasagna ever, and no restaurant and no one else has ever been able to match it, including me. But, but he did tell me the next morning, and I, he even told his mom, so I'm not talking out of school oh. here, that your lasagna was better. Oh, gosh. Oh, his poor mother. You can't say that. Sometimes white lies are good. <laughs> <laughs> so you cooked all over the world and then ended up here in the Napa Valley and got into teaching. How did you make that leap from a crazy restaurant world into a classroom? Huh. I get asked that question uh, quite a lot. But, you know, the thing is, when you're in a restaurant, you have to imagine that you have a team of people. And in order for your passion to be represented on a plate, you really need to train those people to do it your way. And, and it does sound, you know, after my talk about inclusiveness, um, there is a little thread running through, uh, you know, professional culinary work that is sort of my way unless there's a better way. And so I've pretty much spent my whole time training, um, you know, cooks to do things that, that, that would represent my vision the best. So um, I don't really feel like uh, teaching per se was, um, was any different than what I was already doing. Um, I liked the hours, of course. You know, this was nice to have weekends off, et cetera. But, um, but more than that... Um, you know, it was what I what I love about teaching. So I did leap into teaching. I worked at the CIA, and then I ran the Napa Valley Cooking School, where I met you for sixteen years, and um, I and I loved every minute of it. I mean, I loved the I loved so many different things about it that have nothing to do with cooking. You know, if you have some passion, and then you can teach somebody that might not have that passion how to make something, and then they become passionate about it. It's really like this passing of the torch. And it, it was such a great feeling. And there's so many great things about teaching that I think people don't see unless they're a teacher themselves. But just the interpersonal relationships that you have with people. I taught a lot of students who came out during my class. So I can name five students right off the bat that I can think of that, you know, that finally decided, hey, here's a person who doesn't really care about what other people think of her. And maybe I need to take a, a leaf out of that book. And I've actually had people say to me, you know, you were the breaking point where I realized that I could just be who I wanted to be and that the culinary world was going to accept me for who I wanted to be. And okay, telling my parents was difficult and, you know, all that. But they actually, like, you know, came out during 
um, their time at cooking school. So, and, and, and I had other people who, you know, got married and had babies and got divorced and, you know, followed what they've been trying to do for years. So I think that it was a really great avenue to show people when you're working on something as simple as cooking that everybody does, everybody makes something, everybody eats something, that there's a lot of opportunity for like a discourse about other things in life that are really important to to um, direct your passion towards and how important that is to open that passion up and live that life. And I can't tell you how many people I, I know that had have had that sort of awakening while they were at cooking school. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And you've got people that are working in amazing places. Not all Michelin rest, yeah. not all Michelin stars, but that's not what it's all about. But they're all over the world really pursuing their passion. Oh, absolutely. You know, I would say about 90% of my students ended up staying in the culinary field, which I'm really proud of. And I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, well, I, I can absolutely identify with you when it comes to the teaching piece and, and seeing people come into a program who are a little bit lost, discover a passion, and then go out and be super successful. But I think that you would agree with me, having been through the program yourself, that, you know, yes, there's the cooking piece of it, but there's cooking really has a little finger into so many different aspects of your life that I think that it allows people that did, I mean, of course, there's people who didn't have a passion for it and they dropped off the wayside. But the people who came in not exactly knowing what they wanted in in that part of their life and also in many others suddenly realized, hey, I'm actually in control of this thing and and I'm going to make my life worthwhile. So... I think it's really fun. And when I say come out, I, when I can think of all kinds of instances of people coming out in other ways, you know, not, nothing to do with the LGBTQ community, but just coming out of their shell, being the person that the parents said was so shy, chronically shy, and suddenly able to speak to people. Like, that's a huge thing. Right, right. So you were there for 16 years. Yeah. And recently, and I'll put it in quotes, retired, but moved on to do some other kinds of things. You have two projects, but let's start with what you're doing back at the CIA. Okay, sure. Yeah. So I've actually been banned in my family from saying the word, word retired anymore um, because I'm, I'm not. Yeah. So I'm working, of course, a little busier than I was before, but that's, that's, it's cool right now. Um, so I work for the Culinary Institute of America. The CIA sounds so hip, but you know, just in case there's someone out there on your program that doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, I don't want them to think I'm some government representative. But um, I, um, I work for the Culinary Institute of America as a chef consultant. So I, uh, I work with all kinds of people, mostly in innovation sessions. So let's say that you have a, a product. And, and a lot of these people are the large boards of California, the almond board, the prune board. And they'll come and say, you know, we want new ways to show our, um, our uh, we want new ways to show chefs around um, how to use those products more innovate in a more innovative way. So mostly I'm working with people who are professional chefs already, um, and some of them extremely accomplished, that they've been invited there by the, the Milk Advisory Board of California and, um, or the prune board. And, um, and we're working together in an innovation session to use those products that that board represents in more innovative ways. So it's really great. Um, I get a lot out of it. It's really interesting. Um, I also have another little project with the Culinary Institute where I'm authoring a plant-forward curriculum. So, you know, the Culinary Institute is the largest cooking school um, in America. And... 
you know, they're big movers and shakers in the food world. And we have realized uh, that it's our um, responsibility to uh, to take a look at what's happening with the food service industry in terms of sustainability, in terms of um, the environment for the planet. And so we are authoring a new uh, curriculum that will roll out with Google, actually. So it's pretty exciting. And it will roll out in 2020. And it is um, not vegetarian, it's not vegan, it's flexitarian. So meat is a garnish, meat is a condiment, meat is a smaller part of your plate. Um, but it, um, it's really interesting work, and I'm, and I'm enjoying it immensely. Wow, plant forward. So what exactly does that mean? I mean, I know you said that meat's the smaller portion, but but talk more about what plant forward means. Well, I mean, we could go into it. We could have a whole radio show just on the sustainability aspect of raising livestock, which is, is very difficult. You know, cattle, um, raising cattle is uh, the the emissions are stronger than that of cars. So uh, this whole concept is just, you know, water-wise, um, ecology-wise, uh, planet-wise way of being. We have to be this way. It has to be the new way of culinary. And so what that is is mostly eating plants. It's pretty simple. Yeah, and it's and and, and healthier. I mean, come on. Absolutely. So it's the it's not just the health of the planet. It's the health of the person. And it is um, plants is the main source of food in your diet. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Yeah. Look forward to seeing that. That doesn't mean that I don't like ribs and I don't make short ribs and I don't, I still do those things. I just try to eat a lot less of them. Okay, I got it. I got it. Um, and then you're also doing some high end food related tours. And, and this is something you and I've talked about for years. It's, I think it's something that's horribly lacking um, in this food rich place we all live in here. I mean, there's so much to see, and that's what this show is all about, is to bring people in here to see some of this. Sure. But sometimes it's hard to find unless you've got a good tour guide. So tell us about the business. So um, I've teamed up with a travel professional, Karen Rowley. She has a company called Many More Travels, and our new business is called Envy Travel. So it's kind of a play on words, Napa Valley being NV. Um, it's actually spelled N-V-E-N-V, no Y. Um, travel and um, we're still working on our website so it's coming but we're not there yet so it can be accessed through many more travels. Um, what it is is it's kind of a two-part thing. We have tours to the Napa Valley and beyond Sonoma Valley and etc. They're very specialized tours so there's lots of tours to the valleys let's be honest. Um, where ours is completely different is that we combine a very strong culinary aspect to our tours as well. So Karen has been doing tours for many years, um, uh, ranging tours, cruise ship tours, travel, and very high-end luxury travel. But what we decided was necessary here in the Valley was to bring people to the Valley to both taste wine and experience backdoor wineries. And I say that, I don't even know if that's a real term, but um, I say that meaning uh, not... Um, really easy to get into wineries that you can just drive into and get a tour. These ones are private tours, uh, behind the scenes tours, um, and, and wineries that aren't own, open to the public. Then we combine that with food and wine pairing, cooking classes, high-end luxury meals, and all of that comes at a an affordable price. So that's where we're at with this local business. We visit farmers markets, we visit farms, we do menus constructed out of the of the items that we can purchase locally, but we visit farms that aren't open to the public that you can't just traipse through on your own. So our whole goal is to, you know, represent a very strong travel portfolio 
that is um, identified by uh, private wineries, private wine experiences, but then tied in with cooking classes, local tastings, meeting cheesemakers, meeting um, made, meeting um, local producers, and to tie that all together. So I think that's something that's not really being done. There's lots of really high-end, um, there's some very nice uh, culinary programs available in the Valley. There's some very nice tour wine tours available in the Valley, but I think we are the first to tie it together. So it sort of ties in what you were talking about earlier, one of the fun things you like to do, which is, in this case, take people to a farmer's market, go out and find the freshest of the fresh, bring it back into a kitchen, and then figure out what to do with it. Yeah, exactly that. And I mean, what's fun is if you're taking a group through the farmer's market, you're going to find that there's people who are like, oh, look at those spring onions. Or someone else might say, look at the fresh peas. Um, you know, and everybody brings their own piece to the table. So, so easy to do to incorporate that into a menu. And I think I've always been a very flexible chef. So I'm not, you know, rigorous in the things that A, I know how to do, or B, that I don't want to do. I I'd, I'd just I would rather make the customers super happy and um, and and do you know get what they want and see what they're inspired by and sort of follow that passion through. So that's really um, what we're doing here in the in the valley. And then we are also offering um, uh, world global culinary vacations. So that's um, pretty exciting. So so talk about some of the places. I yeah. know you've got an Italy trip coming up, yeah. and then you've got a real passion for Vietnam. Yes, I do. So tell us about that. Okay, so um, you know I've traveled pretty. Uh, and um, and Karen has too, which is awesome. We're taking a group to the Cheese Festival in Bra, Italy in September, which will be great. It's the slow food, another thing I believe in. Um, it's the Slow Food Cheese Festival, so it's amazing. So we're talking little villages that make one cheese, and they bring it to this cheese festival where there are thousands of cheeses represented. In the, It takes over the entire town of Bra, and you wander the stalls trying a million different types of cheese. This is for cheeseaholics like myself, which I love cheese. And we've tied that in with truffle hunting, with a cooking class. Um, there's a, we have a grandmother doing a cooking class. We have a professional chef cooking classes. And then every night we're eating at a different restaurant. Everything from the original restaurant where the slow food movement started to high-end Michelin star places. So it's a little bit of everything. We're also, though, going to have the best coffee at the best cafe. We're going to do the best gelato at the best uh, gel- gelateria in Alba. And uh, we're going to have a professional truffle hunt. It's just going to be a really cool trip. Now that is the way to enjoy a region's food, is to have someone who knows where to go and, and to show you the very, very best. And I think, uh, at least for Tony and I, that's what we really love to do. These are small groups, too. We're not talking about busloads of people. Oh, no, yeah. We do between 8 and 12 people, so very small. Um, and we're with them the entire time. Um, we don't pawn them off onto tour operators. We haven't looked things up on Viator or um, TripAdvisor. We're really going to the source with people on the ground that we know um, to arrange a really unique experience. So our whole philosophy is to have uniquely delicious travel, and that's what we're looking for. So we, are, we, we really really vet the people that we're using and the and the sources. Because we, we know as well as you do that you can go online and you can find stuff on TripAdvisor or Yelp or Viator and you can go and have sometimes a great experience and sometimes a really lousy experience. So I've done those food tours and I know. I'll talk a little bit about Vietnam if you want. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell us. So we're, um, I love Vietnamese food. It's one of my favorite Asian cuisines. Uh, during my time in Australia I cooked mostly Asian food. So um, we had a, a, our restaurant down there 
was very Asian, had a very Asian bent to it, sort of pan-Asian. So I love Asia. Um, I think Vietnam is a place that some people don't feel comfortable going to on their own. And their options are to book a, a tour of which they have no idea what that's going to be like. And a lot of people love the food and want to go and try that food, but they're afraid to eat the food on the streets. So, you know, we're, we're going to be doing a multitude of things from a cruise in Halong Bay where we're going to be doing cooking classes on the deck, um, right to uh, riding out by Vespa scooter into the uh, rice paddies and doing some, you know, grilling uh, right there out in the open air. We'll visit the markets. We are going to have cooking classes. We have a couple of uh, on-the-ground Vietnamese people that I know quite well taking us on food tours. And then we're going to Cambodia to see Siem Reap. Oh, wow. I have to say one of, you have to see it. You have to see Siem Reap. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And I have a a friend who's a chef there, and they are taking us on a food tour um, through the villages to watch rice noodles being made. And then we're going to have a cooking class after that. So it's really going to be great. On those trips, we tend to stay in luxury accommodations. And then we we eat everything from street food to Michelin-level restaurants. Um, But we... We eat everything, um, and it's really quite um, it's quite amazing. And we don't make people go and eat bugs and do things like that. I mean, if they want them, they're there. It, this isn't just sort of a reality TV show type of a tour. It's very luxurious. It's quite um, educational, um, and we just want people to go there, have an incredible trip, l- see everything they need to see in Vietnam, but also do it safely, do it really um, have a great idea about the education of their food. So Yeah, that sounds really cool. And, you know, I'm thinking this would be an amazing destination party for a small group of eight friends. You get your eight friends together. They go to the website, contact you all to see what you could do. Because you could probably put together a customized tour for oh, a yes. group of people, right? Oh, absolutely. So one of the legs of our, our of our business, our travel business, is that we curate trips for people. So, you know, we may have a group of uh, people celebrating a 50th birthday party, and they want to go to southern France, but they don't know what to do. So we will curate that, go with them if they want, not if they don't want. Um, but yes, absolutely. And it's an awesome, and we'll just, we'll just do that on the on the fly. I mean, this is our business, so we don't mind um, doing take touring a group there. Um, in 2020, we're doing Morocco, Croatia, uh, the Basque country in San Sebastian. But, you know, if someone was to call us and say, we want to do a group of 10 people to India, we will do that as well. Well, there's so much to see here in Napa and Sonoma for sure. And I know a lot of our listeners have visited here at once. A lot of them, of course, live here. Um, but the next time that people come to Napa, this would really be a fun way to be able to get something different. Well, and I think one of the words you just said, it's a simple word we don't use that much, but it is fun. Um, it's really fun. Um, it's educational, but I feel like it's really entertaining. And you know better than I do, but I, I, I feel like sometimes I'm a little bit more of an entertainer than I am a chef. And um, and I mean that in, in just the culinary piece of it, but also just making sure that people have a really good, fun, educational time. And I think that's an important thing. If you're planning a trip and you're spending money on it, you want to have a good time. Oh, yeah. And I can guarantee that you will have a good time with Chef B, for sure. <laughs> so we've got just a couple of minutes left. And so I know people love to eat out. Talk about your top three or four tips for finding a good restaurant. How do, I mean, how do you measure it? How do you figure out what's really good before you go? 
Yeah, it's um, it's tricky because you go to a new city and you think, oh, I'm going to go out for dinner. And, you know, sometimes it's really disappointing. And, and you even told me that, that you and Tony are some of the worst customers now because you're so, so critical. Um, critical, but nobody, but, but one thing that I, I could poke a hole in your little theory as well is that um, I asked you if you complain and you said no. And um, so you're actually your own worst enemy, Greg, um, because we're going, and, and I fall into that trap as well. We go to these places, we know what, what is good. It might not be exactly what we're looking for, but we can still appreciate it on a, on it's, it was well prepared, it was well seasoned, it was nicely presented, the service was good. Right. So you may never go back there, but at least you'll go, okay, that was great. But you and I have both had the, oh, that was just awful experience. And then we don't send anything back or we don't say anything. And what's happening there, it's sort of the reverse of the Yelper. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of, of fingers pointed at Yelp because a lot of people don't know what they're talking about and they just, they'll give them a bad review based on one tiny little thing. But it's bad not to complain. It's best to complain because hopefully they're going to make the change if they care. If they don't care, well, there's not much you and I can do about it. I've kind of got a three strike rule with restaurants. I'll go, if it's a new restaurant, I'll go. If it's, if it's lousy, I will try it again. If it's still lousy, I don't go back a third time. But if it's just kind of mediocre or it's really good the second time, I'll go back a third time. There's no foolproof way of doing it. I have gone through the gamut of how to figure out a good place to eat. I do a ton of research before I go. Um, there's some websites that I really do like. Like, I really love Eater. I think it's usually got some pretty good reviews. Um, I love the New York Times. Um, so I usually have a look there. Um, but I sort of do a, a phase, um, you know, a couple, three or four phase re- review process on a place I'm going to eat, especially if it's expensive. I like to read a couple of reviews, and then I like to do boots on the ground. So I really like to ask people where to go. I find bookstores are awesome. They, they maybe used to be better than they are now, but and it's harder to find a good bookstore. But a small independent bookstore in a town, you ask them where to eat, they're usually a pretty good source. Mm-hmm. Then I usually hit them, see what they say, and then I go to an opposite place. Some just a little corner store or something and ask them where they would eat. And you know, you'll often get a, oh, I haven't eaten there because it's kind of expensive, but it's supposed to be really good. Cab drivers are pretty good. Uber drivers, usually they hear a lot of what's going on. I try to avoid Yelp and TripAdvisor because it doesn't always give you a good review. And sometimes people are complaining about the silliest things. Like a I, I just read a review on a place um, that I was thinking of going this summer, and uh, someone was, uh, I, I always read the one-star reviews, and someone gave them a one-star review because the people next to them were in an argument. Well, that's hardly the fault of the restaurant. So those are the kind of things that are slightly annoying. I like your approach, though, about giving ch- places a chance, because every restaurant, particularly a new restaurant, can have a bad night. Sure. You can order the wrong thing. It, it, the, there can be consistency problems, but do give them a second chance, because yeah. these businesses are struggling to try to get on their feet and to make it. I, I absolutely agree with you. And that you know how hard it is for people to battle Yelp these days. And you know, Yelp can shut restaurants down. And so I don't publicly comment for sure, but I will try to make sure that the waiter tells the chef. Um, that the bread was stale because if that if it's if the buck stops there then there's no there's no we can't change anything it's and and again it's just like voting rights or anything else if you say well I can't make a difference right Greg right, I mean we've right, been right, down right, this right. road yes, if you have. say if you say I can't make a difference so I'm not going to bother voting it's much more important than saying I'm not going to tell the chef that the bread was stale but they are of the same 
Yeah. They are of the same idea. So I always make sure that I do it very politely and I'm very nice and I still leave a tip for the waiters. It's not the waiter who you're tipping the waiter, not the food. And I, and I still tip the waiter. And you know what? I think you'll be surprised to find that we always feel like we're going to meet this kind of like eye rolling sneeriness from people. But generally, um, the waiter is pretty receptive. They're, you know, they know too. They know what's going on too. So I always do make just, you know, if it's really bad, I, I like them to know. If I just didn't enjoy it because the music or the, you know, customers beside me or I don't like the decor, I really probably wouldn't complain about that. Uh, where can people go to follow you? Oh, so, um, well, a couple of places you can follow me personally at on Instagram at b.train. That's B period T-R-A-I-N. So b.train on Instagram. That's my site. Um, NV, depending on when they're listening to this, hopefully our website will be up and that will be nvenvtravel.com. But in the meantime, um, they may have to go to um, to the mother, sort of the mother site, which NV uh, uh, is a branch of, and that is manymoretravels.com. Perfect. And if you miss those websites, we will put them on our own website, as I mentioned before, at OutBeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We've been talking with Chef Barbara Alexander, one of my dear friends. Good luck on your new adventure, and thanks for spending your time with us. Oh, absolutely, Greg. It was a pleasure being on here. And, you know, uh, one one thing I forgot to mention, but, you know, uh, if you follow me on Instagram and you want to direct message me with just a, hey, I love the sound of your tours. I can't afford it. I don't want to do it for whatever reason, but I'd love to know where to eat in um, in Bra, Italy, but, or, or any place for that matter. Just shoot me a DM and I would be happy to let you know what I like. And we'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Rick Dean, Executive Director of Face-to-Face Sonoma County AIDS Network. There are more than 2,000 people living with HIV in Sonoma County. 500 of them do not know they have it, and neither do their partners. Face-to-Face offers free, anonymous HIV testing with results in just 20 minutes. Knowing your HIV status can be life-saving for you and for those you love. Visit Face-to-Face in Santa Rosa. Call us at 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Michael Volpat is an entrepreneur and passionate member of our local LGBTQ community here in the North Bay. He can be credited with helping to start the most recent renaissance period of Guerneville when he opened the Big Bottom Market. But what he's best known for are his delicious biscuits. He's written a new book about these famous biscuits called The Big Bottom Biscuit. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate you having me on. It's terrific, and we are here to celebrate this beautiful new book, and it really is gorgeous. Uh, The illustrations, the stories, everything is really super. It's called The Big Bottom Biscuit. Um, So congratulations on that. And for those people people who are not familiar with The Big Bottom Market, just give us a brief history about where it came from and how you got to be involved in it. Yeah, so we opened up the market in 2011. The name, which everyone always asks about, the town was called the Big Bottom in the 1860s. And so we wanted to kind of pay homage to that, which is why we came up with the name Big Bottom Market. That's really cool. I did not know that. I, of, yes. course, I of course, thought about it differently, which is what um, I think most guys would probably think about that visit the Big Bottom Market. You know, it's, it's funny. I Whenever anyone asks me, where the name come came come from, and if it's like if it's if it's a gay guy, I say we named it after you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
Yeah. And in the yeah. and in the book, you write about Sue Steiner as being really from in, in the heart of the very beginning of this. Talk about who Sue was. Sue played a really big role in in helping us figure out which biscuit recipe was going to be the one that we wanted to use. So uh, that's why I decided to pay homage to her and dedicate the book to her. Wonderful. And and so let's talk about biscuits as kind of being the centerpiece for the market. That's one of the things I think that you're most well known for. Why biscuits? Um, we were trying to find something to really distinguish us when we opened up the market. We wanted to do something that nobody else was doing, something that we could uniquely call our own. And Sue literally came to the table one day and said, I think we should do biscuits. And a good friend of mine um, Christian is a baker and he w- helped us kind of find the perfect recipe. And then we, we've adjusted it from there and to make it kind of what it is today. Well, and there's no doubt if you look at the recipe, why those biscuits are so good. There is everything delicious that you would want to put in a biscuit that probably you shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you've talked about in the book the, uh, serving 100,000 customers. It sounded a little bit like a McDonald's claim to me, but it's exciting that that many people have visited the market. How many biscuits do you think you've made? Oh, my gosh, in 11 years. You know, I'd have to go back and, and literally do the math. Um, we, I, can, I, could, I could, like, pull my phone out right now and pull a, pull a POS report. Yeah. 500,000, a million? I don't know. I'd, I don't know what the number is. I think I'd probably put another, at least another zero on that 100,000 uh, number. Yeah. And your biscuits have gained some pretty famous notoriety. Uh, some yes. celebrities have commented about their favorites. Talk about those. So in the summer of 2015, we decided to open up a um, pop-up in New York City. My business partner and I are part owners in a couple of restaurants in New York. And one of them had a coffee window, and so we decided to pop up out of that coffee window. And at the same time, Cosmopolitan Magazine had just written something about Guerneville, and they mentioned Big Bottom Market. So I knew some people in the PR department at Hearst Magazines that owns Cosmo. Hearst also owns Oprah, oh, the Oprah Magazine. And I decided to take biscuits to the team at Cosmo and then also the team at oh, the Oprah Magazine. I got to meet a uh, woman named Rayanne Herman and, Ad- and a man named Adam Glassman. Adam's the creative director for oh, the Oprah Magazine, and Rayanne is the head of the list, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, we had just come out with a biscuit mix and honey product, and so I shared those with them, and then I got a phone call a few months later, and boom, we were in business. We were named one of <coughs> Oprah's favorite things, wow. which was pretty incredible. Yeah. Pretty nice. Pretty nice. So you've got a lot of secrets uh, that you've divulged. Why did you produce a cookbook? What was the inspiration for that? You know, I've always wanted to do it. And ever since we opened the market, I've wanted to do it. I have a very close friend named Brian Perrin, who is in the publishing world. And when we opened up the market seven years ago, a year following the opening of the market, he was working for NBC for their ebook division. And, uh, they offered us a contract to do a book. It wasn't called Biscuit, but it was it was it was something similar to that. So I was excited. We were going to get a book, and then two weeks later, he called me and told me the division shuttered, and so we lost that contract opportunity. He ended up at Harper Collins, and uh, I pitched the book idea to Harper Collins. This was I did that in uh, 2017, in the summer of 2017. 
and HarperCollins told me that they wanted to option the book. And Brian was there. Brian was part of the team that wanted to option the book. And two weeks later, he called me to tell me that their division was going through some major changes. And so they had to pull the contract. Right. So I ended up getting an agent, a woman named Joelle Del Borgo, who I call her my therapist at times because she talks (laughs) me down off of trees. Um, And uh, she helped me find Running Press, which is the which is the company that uh, um, that published the book. And so. This just gets me to my point, which is I've always really wanted to do it, and a lot went into making it happen. And now that it's here and it's arrived, I'm realizing that, you know, in addition to wanting to do it just because I personally wanted to challenge myself and write a book, it's great content for the market. You know, right. we can repurpose it over and over again. <clears throat> Absolutely, so, you can. Yeah, so that's that to me was another really important reason for for making this happen yeah really really cool and i can tell you having written a book it's cathartic it's satisfying it's it's one of the most creative things so good for you for that thank you um well i want to talk a little culinary stuff here um and without giving all the secrets away in the book you know what makes what's the secret to a really good biscuit so i think the secret to making a really good biscuit is using what is called a wet recipe a lot of times biscuits are so dense and kind of cardboardy mm-hmm. and hard hard to eat. But the thing about this recipe is that it is it's wet. Um, you, when you make the dough, you think to yourself, I need to add more flour, but you don't. That's why you use an ice cream scoop and you dust it with flour before nesting it in the pan. So you can see from the pictures in the book, Greg, that the the biscuits come out square. They come out square because of the way we bake them, nest them one next to the other. And we do that because the dough is so wet. So we pack them into into that eight by eight pan and they rise while they're baking into these wonderful, moist little square morsels, so to speak. And that is very different than I think traditional drop biscuits, where you use a wide sheet pan and you put plenty of room around each one so that they brown on all sides. You do talk about using a baking dish as opposed to a pan. Yeah, and that's yep. and and so again, the secret of that is really to give it a chance to rise and stay moist, huh? Yeah, I mean, the, it, they're moist because of the of the how wet the dough is, mm-hmm. and and. Um, and they're square and they rise because of because of the way we nest them in the pan. Interesting. And you've got sweet and savory recipes, which I think is really kind of cool uh, in the book. Give me your favorite for each. So hard. Well, there's a combination of sweet and savory. The chocolate bacon biscuit was that is absolutely mm-hmm. delicious. Um, <clears throat> I love the saucy Italian biscuit because you know that comes from my mother's marinara recipe, and so nice. you know. There's a little bit of home in that one, and I really like the berry, berry, berry biscuit because I like, wow. I like berries. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I, I, that I like was that, that one was too. one that caught my attention as well, um, as well as the sort of the the take on the toad in the hole, the, mm-hmm. with the egg and the biscuit. That one looked mm-hmm. really, really delicious to me as well. Um, the book has all kinds of other content around toppings and fillings for biscuits as well, and uh, you include some compound butters. Talk about those a bit. Yeah, so I love a compound butter. So for those of you that are listening that don't know, a compound butter is a combination of things that go into the butter. And so we always start with a basic 
honey butter recipe, and then we build from there. And so for the book, I created, for me, two of my favorite things in the world are carrots and turmeric. So I um, roasted carrots and used turmeric with the honey butter, and I mixed it all together. That's kind of probably one of my favorites. I think turmeric is an underappreciated ingredient. Um, and, and you're right, carrots and turmeric are a great combination. I, I'm looking forward to making that one. One of the other things that I thought was really kind of a cool idea that you write about in the book, which for all of those brunch-loving folks out there, is a biscuit brunch bar. Um, or a biscuit bar, but I thought it was perfect for a brunch. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. So um, we started, people started asking us to cater biscuits for them, and and they wanted kind of like, instead of having bagels and locks and things like that, they wanted you know, something similar, but with biscuits. So we created this concept, this catering idea that we call the biscuit bar. And it's almost like a, a brunch, you know, we'll serve yogurt and granola and um, uh, pickled onions and uh, compound butters and smoked salmon and just really to try to create a unique kind of table experience that people can people can serve themselves almost like a buffet. And it's really, it goes over really well. I've done it multiple times. I actually just did it for a, a wedding for a cousin of mine, and she absolutely adored it. It's really a cool idea. I mean, you make up a batch or two of biscuits, uh, throw them in the oven, and then get all the condiments, lay it out, and you've got your guests well taken care of. Yes, exactly. It's, it, it's an easy do, so to speak. Yep. Yeah, I love the idea. And I love biscuits, but I always end up with extras. You know, there's nothing like a fresh biscuit in the morning, but a stale one the next day isn't quite as appeasing. Uh, you've got some ideas for how to use the leftovers. Yeah. So, um, surprisingly, you know, at the end of the day, at Big Bottom Market, we'll have leftover biscuits. And we're trying to figure out what to do with them. And um, I think it was Sue's idea, actually. We started using the, the biscuits. We would pulverize them and then press them into bowls and make where well, we first started with chicken pot pie that recipe is in the book mm. but now we make um biscuit quiches so i will pulverize the biscuits press them into a pie pan throw them in the oven and there's just so many combinations of things that you can do with a leftover biscuit they're it's really good well it would make just an absolutely delicious crust for anything as you mentioned that's really cool yes yeah where can people go to get a copy of this delicious book? You can order it on Amazon. Um, you can also order it from the Big Bottom Market Etsy shop. And if you order from the Big Bottom Market Etsy shop uh, and you tell us to sign it, I will sign it for you. So, Excellent. Yes. We will make sure yeah. you get all of those links on our website at OutbeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you can order your book. Michael, where can people go to follow you? Um, they can follow me at, they can follow Michael Volpat at Fabtastic Sweetie, which is my, um, insta my personal Instagram. And then Big Bottom Market, it's big underscore bottom underscore market um, on Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. And part of what we're talking about tonight are fantastic places to visit. Guerneville is definitely a destination for many, and it has a lot of really fun food stops, including the Big Bottom Market. For our listeners who have never been to Guerneville, where exactly is the Big Bottom Market located? Right in the center of town, 16228 Main Street, uh, right next door to King's Sport and Tackle. You can't miss it. And if you go to the Rainbow Cattle Company for a drink and you just walk out to your left, you will find the market and you can stop in for a great biscuit. Yes. 
Michael Volpat, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the book, and I look forward to making these biscuits. Thank you, Greg. Thank you so much for your time. You know, there's so many ways to enjoy good food and wine here in wine country, and I'd like to share one more opportunity that's available to you all year long. The Napa Valley College Cooking School in St. Helena, located on the Napa Valley College Upper Valley Campus, not only offers an advanced professional culinary program, like the one you heard Chef B talking about, but they also have a series of food enthusiast classes for home cooks, foodies, and visiting tourists who want a hands-on cooking experience led by a local chef instructor. Now, these are typically two- or three-hour classes that have no more than 12 to 18 participants. You learn, you cook, and then you enjoy a meal with all the dishes created in the class. Now, if you're traveling with a group or are living here locally and you want to enjoy an event with just your friends, the school can create a customized private class that's available for anywhere from $65 to $125 a person. This is a really fun way to celebrate a birthday or anniversary. We'll put a link to this program on our website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. Well, that wraps up our hour. My thanks tonight to Chef Barbara Alexander and Michael Volpot for being with us tonight. Be sure to tune in to Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's next Sunday night at 8 p.m. And don't forget our celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with MakingGayHistory.com and Eric Marcus continues with part three of our series airing on the fifth Sunday of September. Again, that's only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. Have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move mountains.
the silence is a quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we'll take the world to its feet Move I won't dance Bring it to its feet And we'll rise. 